Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive. When their wrath was kindled against us, then the waters would have overwhelmed us, the stream would have gone over our soul, then swollen waters would have gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Thus far the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of this holy word. O Lord, we ask as we move through some of these psalms that are psalms meant to be sung on the way to worship or in worship. All the psalms are meant to be that way. These in particular, as we walk towards the celestial city, awaiting our final home, yet laboring for its coming on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Lord, as we endeavor to gain perspective as your holy citizens, would you teach us who we are and how our identity and our mission are knit to your own identity and mission. That we would see even this morning that you are a God who has taken a side, and that side is for righteousness and for peace and for justice. Oh, Lord, may we find in our comfort and hope in you, we ask in your name, in the name of our Lord. Amen. Well, whether you like it or not, you are engaged in some manner of conflict. You may not realize it. You may be oblivious even to elements of the Christian church that are far more militant in their practice than others. Uh, it is relatively easy, we were remarking it on this uh, yesterday morning in the Men's Fellowship, uh, that to proclaim the name of Christ in a place like ours, even in Gaston County, uh, is a far more favorable, you'll get a far more favorable response than you would, say, in a place like Cal Berkeley or any of those other places on earth. In fact, uh, there's someone who often jokes in our church when we have visitors visiting from certain areas of this country and they visit this church in this part of the country, welcome to America. It's a joke. I don't think they always receive it as a joke, uh, but it is kind of funny. Uh, and it's not just America where you'll find a variety of responses to being a faithful, living, out loud kind of Christian. Uh, but if you were to go to the nation of Eritrea, if you were to go to China, Indonesia, any of those places where there are secular or Muslim strongholds or even Hindu or Buddhist strongholds, there will be conflict. And the reason for that is this. Religion is what is most central to the identity of man. And do not let anyone in this country or in the West or anyone who says, I am agnostic or atheistic, fool you into thinking they do not have a religion. In fact, the most virulent and violent of religions is the religion of self. It is secular humanism. And as we endeavor to go out and do battle against the world, which we should be doing, and we should be raising high the banner of Christ, we should be wearing him upon our foreheads and upon our hands and upon our hearts so that there is never a person that we meet that may mistake us for something else, certainly not lawless and godless. Such that if we are living faithfully, 
It is absolutely essential that we seek help in the Lord. And you will not understand that you need the Lord's help if you are not out there waging war. Now, it may be sometimes you're just waging war in your own home, and you feel that, or in your workplace, or in your own community. But the reason why the help of the Lord is essential in the heart and mind of David, as the Spirit is inspiring to write, is because he needs help. And the reason that he needs help is he's in the middle of crisis and conflict. He's not shying away from it. And this is the king of a nation that has, at this point, defeated their enemies. The Philistines are gone. David put that conflict to rest. But you know what happens? As soon as one enemy is put down, here comes another. Here comes another. There will never be a time until the very end of this age in which the church will be anything other than militant. We will always be fighting against the kingdom of darkness. How are we to think in light of our connection to Christ and the help that he brings and the confidence that it stirs in us? Two points that I want to make this morning. The first, a covenantal hypothetical. A covenantal hypothetical. And then secondly, grateful for what has happened. Grateful for what has happened. Or I think in your notes, a redemptive certainty. Like I said, sometimes these these outlines shift even between the time I produce the bulletin and finish. Let's look at this first point, a covenantal hypothetical. Now, hypotheticals can be dangerous. I would encourage you at times not to engage in those. But here we're given permission by God himself to ask, what if? What if the Lord was not on the side of Israel? In fact, he wants the Israelites, he wants us two times in worship when we sing this song to put this question to ourselves. What if the Lord was not your helper? If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when men rose against us, then, it's the if then. If this was not true, then the thing that we know would also not be true. And we are to engage in this covenantal, hypothetical, faithfully and consistently and repetitively, constantly. Because we, even as a church, have a pride problem. And the pride problem is this. When things are going well, we often attribute that blessing and ease to the things that we have done and are doing. Because we are constantly seeking The honor for ourselves. David did this. It is certainly what got him in trouble with Bathsheba. There are times when David let the pride go to his head and he numbered his military and his army for no other reason than to bring pride and honor to himself. And he was rebuked by God for that. God gets to number. What's ironic is that now in this country, the success of churches is measured by what? Money and numbers. This is what happens when you apply the Harvard business model to church planting. The church is not a business. It's a garden. And you are not widgets. You are souls in needing of nurture. 
And so it needs to be run like a garden. It's a nursery. Our children need to be nurtured. We need to be nurtured on the truth and the goodness and beauty of Almighty God and the word that he has revealed to us. This makes us a strange place, and it means that we quantify success differently. It is in faithfulness. It is in going to the Lord for help. It is okay with being weak and poor and foolish, such that if God were not on our side, there would be no success. The success of this congregation, then, depends little upon the man who is in the pulpit. It depends little upon the people who are in the pews, in contrast to the God who looks down from heaven and by his spirit dwells among his people and gives them success. You and I are the product of God's extraordinary, unilateral seeking out sinners and showing them mercy because he loves to show kindness to sinners. And so we must confess, if God were not for us, we would not be here. And you need to run through that every time you think, man, I am God's gift to the OPC. <laughs> I'm reminded every time I go to General Assembly, I am a small fish in a very small pond. I'm a small fish in a small pond. I'm not even a small fish in a big pond. All I can, be, all I can do, all I can be is faithful as unto the Lord, work on the holiness of my own heart, and faithfully preach God's word, and hope by God's grace that it stirs in you faithfulness, righteousness, now, another thing that we need to understand about the if as it relates to a covenantal hypothetical is that we must always remember God's character. Because one of the problems we also get into with the if is that we merit God's favor based upon certain qualifications of faithfulness as though there is a one-to-one -one relationship between our obedience and God's blessing in the same way that there is not a one-to-one -one relationship between God's cursing and a particular sin that you have committed. One of the reasons we do this is for the sake of simplicity. Because we do not like uncertainty. We say, God, I'm going to do this, so you do this. This is a dangerous place to live. It is the kind of testing that Gideon did that God did not like, yet nonetheless condescended because Gideon was a man of weak faith in the beginning, to some degree. He needed courage, and God was willing to give him courage. But the if, the hypothetical that we are called to do is to be obedient and then to leave to God whatever results he deems fit according to his promises. Noah was faithful for 100 years to build the ark. It's hard for me to be faithful for 100 hours if I don't see a direct result. Just take our habits with dieting, right? How many days is 100 day, hours? Four. By day four of the new year, you're going, I don't know if I can do this for the rest of the year, right? <laughs> This is the unfaithfulness of men. This is the difficulty of keeping covenant, even with ourselves. And yet God does not have this problem. And so it's not just what if, it's what if not. What if God was not on the side of Israel? 
Then David answers that question because it's a rhetorical question. We would have been destroyed by our enemies. What this means is that you and I, without the spiritual, divine, righteous assistance of God, would be destroyed by the kingdom of darkness. We would be swallowed up. We would be eaten whole. So in my house, there are two dogs. There's Bodie. She's probably about 65, 70 pounds. And then there's Charlie. And Charlie is probably two and a half pounds. A Doberman and a Poodle. Never were two dogs more unalike that loved to be together. And Charlie definitely fights above his weight. Well, and maybe Bodie lets him. Uh, but when Bodie and Charlie are playing and they're lying there in the dog bed together because they love to be there together, Charlie turns over and he starts just going at Bodie. And if Bodie wanted to, she could eat him in two bites. In fact, what she does is she takes Charlie's whole front half and just puts it right into her mouth. Now, I don't know if this is a, a motherly thing or what it is because Bodie's a female, Charlie's a male, but it's very clear if things ever got serious, that fight would end very quickly. We don't have weapons without the one who has been raised. We would have no hope. We would be swallowed alive. Think Red Riding Hood and the wolf. They would have swallowed us alive. Verse 3, when their wrath was kindled against us. Now, when is the wrath of the world kindled against the church? This is the lie that Americans believe. They believe that we are living in a world that thinks favorably of the church and of Christ's glory. We don't live in that world right now. You need to understand that. And though there may be some who are somewhat dispassionate or neutral as it relates to the, the powers and principalities that are evidencing themselves in the powers of this earth that are manifest, Satan cannot stand an active, faithful, worshiping church. There are two kingdoms at war with one another, and we must not be oblivious to this. We must understand that we are in the midst of a battle. And it is not just a battle for human life. It is a battle for the eternal soul of man. Our bodies are nothing compared to the eternal soul. Christ teaches us this. Fear the one not who can kill the body, man, but who can kill the body and send the soul to hell. We need to look beyond the surface level of life, the phenomenal what is seen, and we need to understand that there is a cosmic conflict between the powers of good and evil and that we are on earth on the field of battle. This battle is not being waged in Jupiter. There's nowhere on Jupiter that Satan has any interest. He doesn't care because he wants you. He wants those who bear God's image, and he wants to tear you down and destroy you. And the way that he does that, well, he tempts you to despair. He tempts you to sin. He wishes to make you ineffective. And so what David is wanting you to do is run through the hypothetical of this. What if it was just you against Satan? There was no one to cover you, to protect you. What if God had never come to Adam and to his wife there in Genesis 3 in order to not just convict them of their sins, but to prevent Satan further access to them? They would have been lost forever. 
And he protected us when he cast us out of the garden, lest we eat of the tree of life and live forever in our state of sin. He has always protected us. And you must remember this. Remember who you were before Christ came to you. Because if God was not our side, you and I, we, the church, in every age of men, would be overwhelmed. The stream would have drowned us. He's speaking of our souls that can never die. Next time you, well, let's just say this. From this point on, as you are reading through the Bible year after year after year, I want you to look at the way the Bible uses the language and imagery of water. You find it a lot in the first five books of the Bible. And the thing that I want you to think of when you read verses 4 and 5 is the Red Sea. The Red Sea is the baptism of the nation of Israel prior to their being brought to the mountain for worship at Sinai. God brings them through, and they are not overwhelmed. We also see this imagery in the book of Isaiah. When you pass through the waters, Christ says what? I am with you, and the waves will not overwhelm you. When you pass through the fire, it will not touch you. And we think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Jesus himself who stood in the flames with them. This is the language of covenant faithfulness, what could be if Christ was not with Israel when they went through the Red Sea. And so when Egypt began to go through the Red Sea, what happens? It is the imagery of God dwelling among the nations without Christ as mediator. You cannot survive the judgment and wrath of God, and we as a church, the wrath of sinful men... Apart from Christ's saving, protecting work. We are the untouched ones. And this is why baptism is such a beautiful New Testament sacrament. It's like fire that doesn't consume. It consecrates. It's water that doesn't drown. It sanctifies. It sets apart. But because God is with us, We are not overwhelmed. Now, how does Paul deal with this covenantal hypothetical? He deals with, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he deals with the language of the resurrection. And he speaks of the objections to the resurrection in this way. If you and I are people whose entire faith is grounded upon the resurrection of Christ Jesus, and Jesus is not raised, then our faith is in vain and it is futile. Go play golf. Go do something else. Go find something else to put your hand to on the Lord's day and give your life to. Because you serve an impotent and dead Messiah. But Paul says, guess what? Well, he doesn't say guess what. (laughs) If Christ is not raised, then none of us are raised and our faith is in vain. But Christ is raised. And because Christ is raised, we are raised, and our hope is in the resurrection. What the psalmist David is getting to, though he's not getting to it yet, because he can't. This is a pre-Christ. I'm not saying the Spirit didn't know, but God the Father and the Son and the Spirit 
We're not yet fully, not yet fully revealed the plan of salvation. This is a pre-incarnate expression of messianic redemption. The way in which Christ does save is by his death and resurrection. Because he goes down into the water with us and he brings us up out of the water. These swollen waters, the psalmist isn't saying we won't go through that. He's saying that we go through it through Christ's help and so we are able to come out of it. If the waters had gone over us and we were not in Christ, we would have been drowned. If we had gone into the fire and the son, who, one who looked like the son of man, is not with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would have been burned. It's not that we will not go through these things. It's that we go through them with Christ our Redeemer. That's the answer to the if. And so we move to that second point, a redemptive certainty. That redemptive certainty, the answer to the if, is the incarnation of the Holy One of Israel, the second person of the Godhead, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So here is the hypothetical, and then the pause between five and six, you'll probably see a space, begins with doxology. Our worship is always a right response to meditating upon our need for salvation and God's faithful supply of it. The reason why you do not worship well then, and I do not worship well then, is either because I loved my sin or I do not see the depth and the breadth of God's salvation for me because I do not see my sin for what it is. Covenant children... This can be you sometimes. When you live and grow up in a home where you are taught, and rightly so, from the moment that you come from that womb, God loves you. You are his child. You bear his name. You are a Christian in every way. You may think, well, I'm better than Johnny who cusses in elementary school, right? You know those kids? Where did you learn that mouth? Well, who do you think they learned it from? (laughs) And we live among people like that. And it's wonderful to see God take someone who is not reared in the fear and nurture and honor of the Lord and to be radically, all people are radically saved, right? (laughs) We are transformed. It's the great miracle of salvation. But we must see that the worship of the saints and our enthusiasm is always tied to our apprehension our understanding, our ability to comprehend what God has done for us. This is why we sing the Psalms so much more now at Reformation. Because the Psalms don't let you forget what God has done for you and what God will do through you to the nations of men as we sang in Psalm 149. What God does is he takes a band of misfit no-goods and he makes them his children and he cleans us up And he makes us fit for battle and he strengthens our arm to wield the sword of the spirit to do battle against those who by his grace may be brought into his army as well. His family, his household, and be his children. And so the psalmist says, blessed be the Lord who has not given us his prey to their teeth. 
Now, how does David know this? Because he sits upon the throne of Israel. How do you know this? Because you sit in the sanctuary of Almighty God, and you know the only reason I sit here is because of God's extraordinary grace and design. David is on a throne because God put him there. We are in the house of God because we have been placed there by Almighty God. And outside the house, the nations rage. It is a desperate wilderness. When Adam and his wife were placed in the garden, there was wilderness beyond the walls of that garden. But it was sinless. It was wild. But it was sinless. Outside of the boundaries of the covenant family, Israel, Zion, as we sang in Psalm 51, where forgiveness and peace at least ought to rule and reign, outside the doors of this church is a big wild world. And though Christ is Lord of all of it, he has given us a mission until the time of his second coming to do what Adam and Eve were told to do. Go out and take that for the glory and honor of Christ Jesus. And know this, that you are safe in Christ. You are safe. Your soul, your eternal union is secure. And though you may go through the fire, though you may go through the flood, though there may be those who rise up against you, though there may be those at one day who try to chain the doors of this church, Christ will be victorious. And one day you and I will be in glory and we will tell of the stories when we once fought for the sake of the glory of Christ and now we are at peace and at rest. Because he has not given us to the prey or as prey to their teeth. We have escaped as a bird from the snare or the net of a fowler or fowlers. That's just someone who catches birds. So at some point my lineage caught birds and now I'm forever inscripturated as someone you ought to avoid. (laughs) The snare is broken. We have escaped. Think of all the martyrs who were there upon the stake, burned, ensnared by the world, and the world thought, ha, 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 we have them. We will conquer. And then you see Revelation, the prayers of the martyrs around the throne. And what those prayers do around the throne is even more glorious and powerful than the prayers that you and I give here on earth. They are wholly sanctified before the Lord. They know what to pray for and how to pray for it because they have hearts that are redeemed, fully redeemed. Not yet glorified, but totally sanctified. The snare is broken And so we say, what can man do to me? And not just men, but what can Satan? And what does Luther say? One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers. And that word he says earlier, Lord Sabaoth. Now I thought as a kid that just meant, well, this is a weird way to spell Sabbath. Sabaoth just means the commander of the army of the Lord. The Lord who rides out in battle. We don't often think of the Lord who rides out in battle in this cultural context, do we? We think of the Lord who rides out in niceness, right? He's not on a a war horse. He's on like a, 
a rainbow unicorn. And he just sort of pats people on the head. Love you. This is the world in which we live. We have defanged, we have declawed, we have taken every element of the gospel promises because A, we don't sing the Psalms anymore, we don't read the Old Testament anymore, and we think the way in which we will sort of deal with the aggression of the world is just by ceding further ground to them so that all we're left with ultimately as a church is just the four walls of this building. But what does Satan want? Well, what did he promise Christ? That's how you know what he wants. Because he gave his best promises to the two heads of all men, the covenant head of Adam, covenant head Adam, and the covenant head Christ, in Adam or in Christ. What does Satan promise Christ? The nations. The nations. What was Christ going to the cross to accomplish that Satan wished to provide as a shortcut, the securing of the nations, which means where should our sights be set? The nations. Satan and Christ, Satan and his minions, Christ and his children are after the exact same target, the exact same objective, and that objective is the souls of men throughout the world. But our help is in the Lord. And our hope is based upon his resurrection glory. We need to then know exactly how we've been helped if we are to face the fight with courage. That even if you die, in the moment of your death, your soul goes to be with the Lord in paradise. What that means is this. Live or die, you win. Die young, die old, or somewhere in the middle, if in Christ Jesus you win, what are we afraid of? Well, I think oftentimes we're afraid of the things that we want to hold on to to enjoy a little bit longer that we were not meant to enjoy for eternity in the way that we enjoy them on earth. We want fleshly delights. And so our souls are not equipped like Lazarus and the rich man. Now, I'm not saying that wealth is inherently wicked and that poverty is inherently righteous. Idolatry is the thing that we should be avoiding. Lazarus was poor of spirit. He clung to Christ as his only hope of salvation. The rich man, he hid behind his wealth. And you can only hide so long. The church can only hide so long by the kind of comfort and strength that the world hides behind. The church then can survive anything. We pray for what? We pray for peace. We labor for peace. And peace can only come when the gospel is disseminated throughout all the earth. It's not democracies that bring peace. It's what? The spirit poured out upon all flesh that brings peace. So that we can say here at the end, our help is, not could be, or has been, or was, that in every age, the covenant people of God, as they work through this hypothetical, can arrive at this certain covenantal conclusion. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Now, why the name of the Lord? Because the names of the Lord are what he gives to us that are like those posts that we drive into a wall that we hang all of our hope on. Sabaoth, Jehovah Jireh, Adonai, 
these names, like the one that Joseph, uh, Joshua encountered right as he took leadership of Israel and he was bringing them into the promised land and he met the commander of the army of the Lord and he said, who are you for? And he said, no, no, no. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Who are you for? We should live without fear then because Christ is on the side of his covenant people. We are those who know true liberty from something and what is that, free, what is that freedom from? Fear, that we will be overwhelmed to the point that our souls are cast off, our union eradicated or undermined or destroyed, and that we are redeemed and free for something, for the mission and work of the kingdom. We have escaped. Through Christ Jesus, we have escaped. And though it may not feel immediate, it is nevertheless absolute and true. That freedom in fullness awaits even the glorification of our bodies when God will vindicate all of the righteous and he will cast death and hell forever into that lake of fire. And our striving will be no more. And we will eat at the table of Christ and he will wash away our tears, but we are not there yet. But though we are not yet there, the promise still remains, and praise God it does. It is still a promise, it is still powerful, it still transforms, and it still gives us hope and strength. Because God is our refuge and our strength. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God.